media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Maybe just a little bit before we actually get into the scripture part of that, but that will give you plenty of time to find Nehemiah if you're not familiar with where that is. At men's uh, meeting last Sunday night, I said, you know, open to Jude 1, which there's only one chapter of Jude, and it, you know, it takes a while when you get those, you know, those little books that don't have a lot. Nehemiah's a little bit longer, but it's uh, one that may be a little bit more unfamiliar to you. I just want to look at uh, this whole idea of vision and how God uses vision in our individual lives and in the life of the church to help us uh, with this call that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about the Great Commission uh, that Christ gave before his ascension and, and how he called the church to be, you know, this body that would go out and, and would go out and tell the world about the hope that is in Christ Jesus and go and make disciples and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we see this call upon our lives and we've talked about it in these terms, a macro level, that this is for the whole church that is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, but it also has a very personal level. If you're a Christian this morning, he has called you to do that, okay? And then kind of in the middle there, we see in the New Testament that very much this is the call of the New Testament for us as believers to, to join together with other believers in local bodies uh, that we call churches. And we've called, uh, this call is, you know, how we live this out, this going. This morning we're going to explore that a little bit more, but it tells us what we're supposed to do, but have you ever noticed that in the Great Commission, it really hasn't told us how to do it? Hasn't told us, okay, you can be this kind of church, this size, uh, do these events, do these kind of ministries. No, he's really left that up to us seeking out, okay, God, how have you called me to do this? One of the most challenging parts of, if you want to say local church, is not following a lead from some other church that looks to be a little bit successful. Have you noticed that we are kind of captivated by that? Somehow we think that, okay, if this church has, you know, really succeeded, then let's find out what they're doing. And if they're doing these five things, let's try to do those five things. Guys, I, I don't know that that's really biblical at all. <laughs> I, I think that God has called each one of us, as he's called you as individuals, to follow Jesus Christ. And then he's going to coordinate that. Have you ever noticed husbands and wives... If you've both put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, how you have different gifts and sometimes even different views, but instead of posing and and kind of God dividing you over that, that God oftentimes starts to bring you together. And he actually uses that as something that's unifying you. Over the years, the most frequently question that I've gotten from adults in youth group is always, how far is too far? I mean, that's always the the ultimate teenage question, okay? But from adults, it's always been this. How do I find God's purpose for my life? Is that a relevant question to you this morning? No matter if you're a brand new Christian, whether you are somebody who's just thinking about Christ, you may not even be a Christian yet. You're still kind of pondering the gospel and what that means. Is there a God? I mean, you may be in that place. Or you may have walked with God 30, 40, 50 years now. And even for those who have walked with God for 30 or 50 years, is this a relevant question to you? That's why it's the most asked. 
And the cool thing is that there's, you know, the, the hard thing, but the, the, the good thing is that there's not one answer to that. Wouldn't it be great if your pastor had that answer? And so that you came and he said, hey, you're the fourth person today. Here's the slip of paper, these five things. But that's not how God is. God's a personal God. And in that personal nature of God, he not only knows us by name, by the number of hairs on our head, but he has a personal call. Now, collectively, to do two things, to bring him glory and to go and tell the world about Christ and make disciples. And so so we know what we're to be about, but what does that look like in your life as a teacher in a high school, as somebody who owns their own business, as somebody who's going out there and maybe you're in the service environment and and you're doing this or that on a a regular basis, you know, this is what your job is. What does that look like? What a relevant question this is. Well, whether you have, you know, you just got married or you're not married, whether you're just starting a family or whether you have five kids and, and actually you have five kids and, and they've given you 20 grandkids. What a relevant question. I, I would challenge that besides our own salvation, that this is probably the most relevant question in life. The most pertinent one to, to us to really to, to kind of at least have a grasp on. God, what is your purpose for my life? Why, why have you put me here? Now the question is, how do I find that? How do I discover what God has called me to do? I mean, wouldn't it be great? I mean, think about it in biblical terms. Wouldn't it be great if you were Noah and just God came and said, build an ark? Okay, I, I kind of know what I'm supposed to do now. I didn't know before, but now... I have a sudden inference, interest in gopher wood. Because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to build an ark. Why? Because God called me to build an ark. Now, what if you were Moses and all of a sudden you're just out there tending sheep and you're content for the rest of your life to just kind of watch these sheep and tend to these sheep. And that's about as complicated as life you, you really want. And then God, through this burning bush, says, no, I want you to actually go to the Pharaoh and I want you to lead my people out of captivity. And one way that's amazingly challenging, it's overwhelming, but at least, what is God's purpose for your life, okay? You go down there, and he's given you kind of a script to go by. And yet that doesn't happen in all of our lives all the time. I mean, it would be great and easy if he just said, do these five things, and we do it. And yet, God doesn't do that. I've told you before, and I'll share with you again, I've never heard God's voice audibly I don't know if that disappoints you, if that's strange to you, that a pastor would not hear God's voice audibly. He speaks to me every day in my heart my mind, through his word and through his spirit. He speaks to me constantly. And yet I've never heard the audible voice. And one of the things that I always thought would be kind of cool is if God really did in an audible voice, do this. I mean, take some of the question marks out of this really important question. And yet... He doesn't do that all the time. And so I'm not saying that we're guessing, but it wouldn't be easy if he just said it. And and then then you complicate things. It's one for you to have this question. But you know what really complicates this question? As when you're talking about two or more people. For example, a guy can come up. I mean, can you imagine, ladies, if a guy came up and says, I prayed about it. God's will is that you're going to be my wife. God has told me that you are to be my wife. And then you can come back to him and say, well, God has told me that you're insane. You know, they, you've lost it, okay? 
that somehow the minute we involve two people or three people or 400 people, isn't it amazing that maybe we don't always see things on that same level? So this is something we have to be really, I, I want to say, careful with. So how does God, as a New Testament Christian, how does God begin to reveal his will and discern his purposes for our lives? Three things that I want to share with you. You know the answers probably already. His word, his spirit, and his people. And that is maturing people that are growing in Christ. Okay? And from these three things, God begins to develop a vision for our lives. I promise you, you stay in the Word. You very much discern that the Holy Spirit, that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit plays is is to communicate to you in your heart and, and kind of give you direction for life. And then in accountable relationships through discipleship, and people that are maturing in Christ, maybe even a little bit older in Christ, they say, okay, here's some truths that I found. And God uses these things to help develop this vision and sometimes a purpose for our life. Now, when you hear that word vision, maybe you begin to think all mystical. And some people do that. The minute you go, okay, the vision for the church, vision for your family. And sometimes we start thinking almost in that mystical light of, okay, do I have to climb a mountain and meet with God? Did Moses do that? Is that what we have to do? We have to go in this holy track and somehow find God. No, believe me, guys, he's already found you, okay? And you don't have to find him. He's found you. And you wouldn't even know about him had he not revealed himself to you. Another thing that you might be able to think is, okay, do I just need to take a vow of silence and solitude? I'm just going to go off into the woods for two weeks to listen for God. And when we begin to think about it in that mystical way, I'm not saying that two weeks in the silence of the woods might give you opportunity to hear God. I'm just saying I don't think it's necessary. It's not necessary. I can explain. He can talk to you this day. What's the difference, Pastor. In discerning the answer to the question, God's vision for your life, please do not fall into the trap of it becoming mechanical. Let it be mysterious. Let it be miraculous. Quick question. Could God give everybody their own personal step one, step two, through step five? Could God do that? My experience is that God usually doesn't do that. That in answering that question in that perfect life, that he doesn't just say, here's the five things, do these five things. Because you know what my human nature would do with those five things? Check, 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 check. And and most of it would be me kind of working toward that end. Are you okay that rather than mechanical in nature, that God usually is miraculous in nature? Are you okay with that? Because that's his way, guys. Yeah, to, to know he comes up, build an ark. And I'll supply the, take my people out of captivity. And there will be times that God directly does that. And it will seem kind of like, okay, here's the big picture. But don't make it mechanical. Allow it to be mysterious. And I would say miraculous. Have you ever heard the verse found in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen? And most of you may not know it by that address, but you know the verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Anybody ever hear that before? Yeah. And we kind of throw that around, and we actually sometimes 
take that a little bit out of context, go back and read the whole thing, and you'll see the whole context of God's word there. Remember that it's in Proverbs, and so this is a wise saying, not even so much a promise as it's just very wise. That's why it's found in Proverbs. But that word perish doesn't mean die in the sense of physical death. Where there's no vision, people die. Now what it means is actually that people go and do their own thing. The word in the Hebrew is really much more of the word chaos. They, they go do their what's right in their own mind as opposed to that they do something that is actually coordinated or in unity with somebody else. And, and so where there's no vision, what's the purpose of vision? It's this unifying factor that takes people, like we talked about last week, from different backgrounds. Heaven forbid, Democrats and Republicans... Liberal and conservative, young and old, Yankees and Southerners. I mean, whatever it is, Jews and Greeks. Not trying to be funny, I'm just kidding. Guys, is that mechanical or is that miraculous? It's miraculous. And part of the way that God brings all these diverse people together in Christ is that becomes our identity. And here, without a vision, it's just the people perish. They're led to... To chaos. If you go back and look in other versions, that's what it says in the King James. And uh, but if you even uh, go to like ESV, my, my favorite, to throw off restraint, others out of control. You'll get this in the paraphrase: run wild. That's what it says, and that's really exactly what it means. We have a lot of teachers here, and, and here's my illustration. To, to illustrate this, without a vision, without something governing it, without something unifying it. It's like kids on a playground without rules. And you don't have to be a teacher to kind of imagine that in your mind. You have all this diversity of kids. And if there's not rules, uh, you can't do this and you can't do this. Just go have fun. That gives some order to the chaos. And without that, the people really do perish in the sense of having unity. That's what this word means. And how does God answer that? Through a vision. Where there is no vision, the people scatter. They do what is right in their own mind. It creates not unity, but chaos. Do you see that in God's word? So is vision important? Vision for you as husband and wife? Husband for you as a family? And vision for us as a church family? And so even though it's one of those things I, I'm challenged when I preach about vision, not because there's not vision for the church, because it's not one of those, I just want to go verse by verse, book by book. I mean, that's my comfort level because I, I just know, okay, God, this is your profound word. And when we get into vision, all of a sudden, I realize that I'm in a room full of folks that that vision for their own life and the vision even for the church may be entirely different. Why do we sing that old song this morning? My goodness. That's an ancient song. Why did we sing the other song after that and the other song after that? Instead of kind of relying upon God to make his vision mechanical in your life, will you do something right now? Okay, God, I trust you with it being mysterious and being miraculous. As much as I want... Step one, two, three, four, five. I really do want you to say, go build an ark. 
I very much want this morning for you to be able to, to have this vision that unifies us to a common goal. This is important, guys, even in, even in things that are not biblical of nature. Uh, for example, is vision important for the UGA football, in something non-spiritual like UGA football? And some of you are offended right off because I called UGA football non-spiritual. Okay, and somehow in your mind you're going, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Is vision important in a business? Yeah. Without a vision, people perish. They scatter. They do their own thing. This is an important concept for mankind. I'm telling you, it's a very, very important concept and truth from God for the local church and for the local family. Carly and I have kind of two, I won't say drastically different, but drastically different ways of parenting. I'm the enforcer. And she's the, come on, hug on mama. You know? And, and so it's one of those things, we always had different views of, okay, how do we correct this wrong behavior? How do we kind of encourage this right behavior? And her answer was always, love, love, love. And my mind, spare the rod and spoil the child. You know, it was one of those things that we had to, but what we would do by the grace of God, by the grace of God, is we would tell the kids, you know, we're, we're going in the bedroom. When we came out, we're one. Because we found out that that's the best parenting. Because we found out two things. Number one, our kids have this radar to see the differences, and they will play the middle. I know you don't have kids like that. <laughs> but our kids would play the middle. Oh, this is how dad feels. Here's how mom is. Here's the place to divide and conquer right here. Vision's important, guys. It's biblical for businesses. I mean, you ever been to Sam's Club early in the morning? And you see them kind of gathered around? And the team leader is giving them kind of the thing? And then at, at the end, Sam's, 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 Sam's. And some of them are doing it because that's their job. Sam, Sam, Sam. And others are like, they're living and breathing Sam's. Why do they do that? Because vision is important. And biblical vision for a church is ultra important. Vision, godly vision, is what makes us as individual Christians have the ability to unite together. And God used that through the Old Testament and the New Testament and this vision repeatedly. One of my favorite stories is found in the book of Nehemiah, finally getting to some scripture this morning. And, um, and, and the objective before Nehemiah was this, these people had been scattered. They had been literally scattered. They had been taken over by other nations that were not godly nations, and they were kind of held captive, and they were now exiles in these different places of the world. And, and God was going to, about to bring them back together. And he would already threw a couple other people before Nehemiah had brought the first stages of people back. And they went to Jerusalem and they looked at Jerusalem and Jerusalem had been trashed, guys. So they wanted to rebuild the temple. In order to be, rebuild the temple, one of the necessary things was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem for, for some protection. We've talked about that before. But your identity in the Old Testament was how big your walls were. That was your safety. That was kind of your, you know, representative that the might of your nation. And, and so these are the needs that they had. 
Now, I want you to look at that because the elders of the church believe that God is calling us to expand our buildings at Cornerstone. And, and so that as we could grow, that not just in numbers, that, that we could grow in, in ministry levels. And, and folks, we can look at that as a project that has practical purposes. We can say we, right now we have 10,400 square feet and we believe that God wants us to about double that and go to about 20,000 square feet. And folks, it can be bricks and sticks and mechanics and lists and here's what we need. And basically we can look at how much do bricks and sticks cost? A whole lot, by the way. And, and how do we, do we have enough money to build this? And then we can get down to, okay, how many rooms do we need to have for the nursery? And how many rooms do we have to have for this? And, and all those things. It can be very mechanical. Can I challenge you with this? It can be quite miraculous. It really can. Does it have a mechanical nature? Yeah. You know, most of the time, most builders want a paycheck at the end of the week. It's just funny how that works. And, And yet I can promise you guys, and I'm not trying to be funny. I'm really not trying to be... To really fulfill God's call for CS, for us to really to do anything with the first brick or stick or building or anything? It's not a mechanical question. It is a ministry question. It is the miraculous question. It is, okay, God, what have you called us to do? Would it be okay if God called us to be a small church and a small intimate church? I would answer that yes and no. (laughs) Yes, it's okay to be any size church. But we should always be expanding the kingdom. We should always be witnessing and going and making disciples. So let's not get it. I don't believe that the answer is a holy huddle. At the same time, how big? Been in the big church. Really great things about big churches. I don't know that that is what God has called us to. But here's we've spent the last two weeks. Hey, here's what God has called us to do, these five things. And really to try to do them as well as we can. And whether we grow in number, that's okay. And if we don't grow, that's okay. As long as we're striving to do those things that bring the glory to God and that we're, this commission that he's placed upon us, that that we're following that. And by the strength and by the grace of God, we're we're trying to do that. So so the vision this morning, as we talk about in the next couple of weeks about expanding our buildings, please don't think just of the mechanical. Some mechanical questions to be answered, you betcha. But it's not a mechanical question. It's a vision question. Nehemiah 1.3. Let me give you kind of a background. Verse 1 and 2. One of his brothers, maybe a couple brothers, and um, uh, some other men have come from Jerusalem uh, to where he is. He's in Persia. He actually works for the king. He's got a really nice job working with the king. He's got connections there with the king himself, Nehemiah does. And they come and they, and he asks this question. Look, look at what he says in verse three. And they say to me, said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble, in shame. The wall, the wall of Jerusalem is broke down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Again, walls are very important. And Nehemiah, he hears this. He says, okay, how things back home? And they don't give a good report. They actually give a very discouraging report. Man, it's in shambles. Man, just things are just wasted. Now look at his response in verse 4. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept 
and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. It's a really important verse. Men, and I'm not saying the ladies don't have this in you. I'm just saying, I'm talking to men because I am one and so I can kind of come from a male reference there. So please do not be offended, any female here. But men, you hear that? What's the first thing that flies off in your mind? Especially if you have some construction background. Let's go fix this thing. Bricks and sticks. How many of you almost, when there's a problem in the family, whether it's financial with the kids, man, does it just, first gear is, how do I fix this? I'm a problem solver. This is part of my job. It's part of who I am. It's part of the DNA. It's there. It's not that my wife doesn't have that. She's a great problem solver. But her first gear a lot of times is, how do I love? How do I love? And, and so she has that motivation. So we really work well together. And I'm not saying all men and, and all women, but this is kind of contrary to how I would probably react to that news. I don't know, even though the older I get, the more I weep, <laughs> and I have sorrow over things, unapologetically. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Because Jerusalem had lost its identity because they were vulnerable. Or somewhere along the way, do you think that part of this sorrow, part of this lament, part of this upset in his life is that the Jewish people had lost God's purpose in their life? Do you think there's maybe a connection there? That because of their disobedience, God has has allowed them to be exiled all over the world or all over the place? And and this is what happened to the, the, the city and the town, the temple. I don't think it's just this kind of like American pride, this nationalistic pride. I think it has a spiritual, the sorrow I think is coming more from a spiritual side of Nehemiah than a patriotic side. I'm not saying that he didn't have to deal with the patriotic. Go Israel, go Judah. You know, he probably had that within him. But this weeping, this sorrow, there's very few times that a lot of men would hear words and sit down and mourn and weep for days and fast and pray. I'm just saying that's not our first gear a lot of times, if we're really honest to ourselves. So there's something in Nehemiah that didn't just come out with a mechanical answer. He just wants to know the mystery and the miraculous answer. Okay, God, well, what are we to do? And so he begins to pray. And all we have time for is just to kind of go through that prayer pretty quickly this morning. But I want you to notice the structure of this prayer. It basically is involving two things. The truth about God and the truth about man. Look for those things as we would go through this. He starts off with the truth about God. Then he goes about the truth about man. And then he comes back to the truth about God. And then he makes a request at the end of that prayer. First part of that prayer. Verse 5. The truth about God. Where does he start his prayer? The truth about God. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Is that about the people of Israel or is that about God? Whose nature is it describing there? God. 
Man, what a great way to start off your prayer. And instead of just focusing on your nature and your lament about who you're addressing and the God that you're praying to. So he starts off there. God, you're a covenant-keeping God. You're a great God. And then he talks about the truth of himself and, and the people of Israel. Verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded to your Moses servants. God, you're a covenant keeper and and we have not been a covenant keeping people. We've sinned. We've broken that covenant. So does this just end there? No. He, he continues, verse 8 through 10. Now he puts his attention back on the truth about God. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and will bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God, we've really messed it up. You're you're a covenant keeper. We're not. We broke it. You kept your word and you really did scatter us to all these places. And now we're exiles all over these, you know, this area. But God, you are a covenant keeper and you, you said that if we return to your commandments, that you're faithful to bring us back together. Do you see that? Going back and forth. Man, this is the truth about you, God. This is the truth about me. And he's going back and forth. And which one do you think is kind of giving him hope? The truth about himself or the truth about God? Folks, we are. God already knows the truth about us, but confession and admitting and agreeing is a step of repentance. And so God's always going to honor that because it, it turns our heart back into right thinking. But our hope isn't that we will start thinking right again. Our hope is that God is a covenant keeper and, and that he will give us even this ability to think right again. And that's where, how many bricks and sticks has Hezekiah mentioned so far? Do you think he has a mechanical mind? Do you, do you think that maybe in the back of his mind he said, you know, we're going to need a lot of rock. We're going to need a lot of this. And somehow we're going to have to finance all this. We're going to have to get the money. Do you think that as a man, that that would be kind of something, you know, that would kind of cross his mind just a little bit? Yeah, and yet where does he start? Where does godly vision start? With God in prayer. Will the mechanics come? Yeah, go read chapter 2. He goes out every night. Takes his horse, his faithful horse, <laughs> or donkey or something. And he goes out and every night he's making sketches. He's writing things down. The mechanics will come. But you don't start a godly vision on mechanics, guys. You don't start a godly vision 
well, you know, here's how much space we have now, and we're kind of running out of space on some of these things. And so what if we built this? You know, the area is growing, and here's the statistics of how much it's going to grow in the next five, ten years. All those things are, have some importance, but it's not the start of a godly vision. Start of a godly vision is mourning the lostness of our neighbors, guys. Mourning the lostness of little boys and little girls that won't grow up in a Christian home and know the grace of God and and then will go out and and they'll never know what that means to have the joy of, of, you know, a mommy and daddy that love Jesus really well. That's where we mourn. That's where we weep. And then we come before God. God, we're sinners. And yet our hope is in you. And he prays this prayer. God, this is who you are. This is what we've done. We we agree. We know that we have. And yet, God, this is what you have promised. Now look at the last part. Then he finally, finally makes a request before God. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. More than likely, he's talking about the king there because he's got a job and yet he's about to ask for a time of leave to go. No, I was the cupbearer of the king. Cupbearer of the king, pretty important role. Yeah. They bring him something to drink. You drink it first. Give it 10 seconds. If you're still alive, he drinks some. (laughs) Pretty good job, though, because except for that risk factor, you get to eat some really good stuff. I mean, it's king food, okay? Yeah, let me try a little bit of that prime rib there or whatever it might be. You know, you get to taste some really good food. And the only thing is, if you drop dead, well, you perform your job well. You know, because the king knows, don't eat that. And God is about to place a godly vision in Nehemiah's heart that would take these scattered people, these exiled people, and bring them back into a place of unity. And it will involve mechanics and bricks and sticks. But it doesn't start there. And I promise you, it doesn't end there. In the next couple of weeks, guys, we're going to ask you if you'd like to be part of the vision team or if you know somebody that would like to be part of the vision team. And we're going to give you opportunity to nominate some people. And we're going to assemble together these vision team. And some of the things that we'll look at is, okay, what is the growth expected in this area? And, and what kind of finances do we have? And there's going to be a lot of things like that that we'll discuss that are mechanics. And yet this is the core. I pray this is the core. That even before we nominate the first person to be part of, not a building team, but a vision team. God, what have you called CS to be? If you say go build an ark, show us where the gopher wood is. If you tell us to go lead people out of captivity, then show us how to go and, and, and set them free through your power and through your word. Guys, any godly vision is going to start with a mourning over the need. And would you agree 
that there's a need in our community, that there's a need in our own church, that there's a need in my own life for God just to show up big and do what only God can do. Does it break your heart that there's little boys and little girls growing up without a mommy and daddy that love Jesus? That should break our hearts. I mean, that... I said that he spent the next week or so in, in mourning. That, that should make us mourn for, a, I mean, weeks and months. That's where God's vision for our church begins. Mourning, thinking deeply about the things that concern the heart of God, getting past mechanics, and saying, God, will you do the miraculous? Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we love you and we thank you. And Father, there's an excitement. Any time a church would start to maybe go through a place of maybe building or expanding, Father, by your grace, you've provided opportunity for us here in Jackson County. And Father, I know one of the first things that goes through my mind is finances and bricks and sticks and what size and, and what does it look like and all those things? Father, will you get me to the step before that? That we would have such a, a heaviness of our hearts of little boys and little girls growing up and never knowing the beauty of the gospel. Never seeing a mommy or daddy that loves Jesus or tries to love Jesus really well. Father, when you bring that to our hearts and our lives, Father, all of a sudden, it really doesn't matter about breaks and sticks. Father, all of a sudden, you're ready to do the miraculous. You're ready to do the mysterious. Because your concern is not how big, how this. Your concern is that little boy and that little girl. And that you want to just surround them with the beauty of this beautiful gospel. And the amazing love and hope and life that Christ brings. So, Father, we love you this morning. Help us to be people that are in prayer even this week, Father. Drive us to our knees that we might have compassion on this city, that we might have compassion on our neighbors, that, Father, we might feel just a little bit of what you feel. And that would be the start of the vision that you bring to our church. We love you and we thank you. And now, Father, we end our time together by worshiping you and telling you the truth about you and the truth about us as we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.